You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that puts the read in quarant-quarant-read? I don't know. It's been a really long time since we've recorded an episode of this, but I'm Megan. I'm RJ. That's right. It's the illustrious return of everyone's favorite foremost expert on literature and or finance, RJ. It's- Me! <laughs> It's been a hot minute since you were in the proverbial hot seat. How's it feel? Feels good. Yeah? Yeah. It's been what? It's been like, uh, the last time I recorded for one of the class was like before I left Florida. So it was a few weeks at this point. It's been like over a month for you. So let's let's see if we still remember how to do a show. I know how to do a show. I'm, I'm so glad you feel good about this. I feel like my sanity is slowly eroding away. And that's why today we're talking about a book where another character feels fairly similarly. Cooper. No, that's the cat. That's not a, that's, that's not a book. That is our cat. RJ is kissing our cat right now. Uh, nope, he's chewing on the cat. Please don't do that. Please don't chew on our pet. <laughs> don't put your mouth on that. Man, she's just kind of putting up with that, huh? We're reading The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Uh, the novella The Turn of the Screw has garnered a reputation as, quote, the most analyzed and ambiguous ghost story in the English language and is still his most widely adapted work. And also he's just considered one of, like, the, the masters of the field of the ghost story. Ghost and goblins, baby. I know, it's April, it's not the traditional spooky times, but... I'm very bored and trapped in my home. And we already did the yellow wallpaper, so, like, it's time to turn some screws, baby. Have you read this before? Nope. Have you ever read anything by Henry James? Maybe. That's vague. Did you read The Portrait of a Lady? I feel like you might. Nah, but I saw A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That's a different, altogether sexier thing. I don't know. I mean, I really did research to see... So... (laughs) New home, new setup, same trains. (laughs) It is the same exact train, by the way. It followed us from Florida. It's a ghost train, as it turns out. It sensed our compassionate vibrations. No, sympathetic sympathetic vibrations. I'm a very compassionate person. You are, and the train sensed that and wanted to follow your your love home to Colorado. It did. And a train shall follow you home. I don't know if I've ever read anything by Henry James. I did see Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I did some research to see, well, these titles are pretty similar. (laughs) Yeah, you did some research? I did. (laughs) I'm so glad that's what you're spending your time doing. The plot of A Portrait of a Lady really has nothing to do with A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So... It'd be a stretch at best, and no one else has brought this up, so I'm going to go with no. 
So I had to read The Turn of the Screw in undergrad. I abjectly refused to read anything else by Henry James. I know Portrait of a Lady was assigned. <laughs> I never read it. There's another Henry James book. The only other one that I'm familiar with is called The Golden Bowl. Uh, it has two parts together. It's over 700 pages long. And at the time, my professor was like, hey, be, be glad that we're reading these Henry James books and not The Golden Bowl because... Uh, what was it? She gave it to either her boyfriend or her husband, I don't remember which, and that he was so pissed off about the ending after reading 700 pages that he hurled the book at her, which is quite an emotional response. You ever want to smoke the golden bowl? I mean, it's legal here. <laughs> we can do it. This is a much more digestible novella and is not about the trials and tribulations of marriage and adultery. Snooze boring. But spooky ghosts, or possible spooky delusions. Ooh. 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 Oh. No. No, oh. no, no. Oh, delusions. Uh, oh. That's, no. Oh, delusions. Why do we do this show? <laughs> For all my fans. Yep, all three of them. Um, no, there's more. No, there's got to be at least 15. Yeah. <laughs> But before we can do that, RJ, please, if you can still remember how, tell us everything that there is to know about this American boy who wanted people to not remember that he was an American boy, Henry James. Henry James Jr. was born tax day. What a good American day. <laughs> April 15th, 1843, and died February 28th, 1916. He was born in New York City to Mary Walsh and Henry James Sr., Senior was a theologian and a lecturer. The religion of choice for Senior was Swedenborgianism, also known. Come, come again. <laughs> Swedenborgianism, also known as the New Church and the Church of New Jerusalem. They had a lot of names. In short, they basically believed all you needed to know in life was the Ten Commandments, as they taught you how to live your life. One of the Swedenborgianism's missionaries is someone we all know. An American hero of sorts. Any guesses? Tim Tebow? No. Oh. I mean, that's just my go-to when it comes to you and people, followers of the Christian faith. I don't think Swedenborgianism's around anymore. How the fuck do I know? Johnny Appleseed. Come again? Johnny Appleseed. That wasn't a person. Yeah, he was. That was a, a, a folk tale, like like John Henry or the guy who roped the, the tornado, P Pico's Bill. I don't know. Oh, that's who the Disney restaurant's named after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, to me, that place will always be the home of free guac until it wasn't. It was a pretty good deal. It was. Yeah, Disney food blog, they don't talk about that one anymore. Uh, R.I.P. free guac. Yeah, Johnny Appleseed, he was a real dude. His name wasn't Johnny Appleseed, but he was Johnny. Did he wander around... Planting apples. Sowing his seeds. Yeah. Sowing his yeah, seeds. Yeah. No, it's definitely sowing. It's not sowing. <laughs> he was not sowing his seeds. Holy <laughs> shit. Um, why don't you continue? Senior was afforded this lifestyle of religious study and lecturing because his father, Junior's grandfather, was a wealthy banker who was able to provide enough money to allow generations of Jameses to avoid having to live to work to pay the bills. How nice. Hmm. To put this in context, Granddaddy James amassed a fortune of $1.2 million in 1789, which converted to 2020 dollars is a little sum known as $35 million. What the fuck? Look, it's not Oprah money, but uh, 
I wouldn't mind having, oh, 1% of that. Yeah, that'd be pretty chill. Mama James also came from a wealthy family, although not quite as wealthy. But then again, at this point, it probably didn't matter. No, not really. Having money on both sides of the marriage probably helped the decision for the duo to have five kids. Henry Jr., Garth Wilkinson, William, Robertson, and Alice. Wait, Robertson? The kid's first name was Robertson? Robertson. Robertson James. That's kind of a powerful name. How about Garth Wilkinson? Garth Wilkinson is something. (laughs) He went by Wilkie. Okay. Yeah. Henry James Jr. is a bit of a Dick Cheney, Alfred Hitchcock kind of looking dude. He's not very attractive. Big, pasty, and bald. And given that Hank is a nickname for Henry, which I spent way too much time researching as to why, without really getting a good answer. That is, you know what? That's a question worth looking into. I'll grant you that. Just is. That's stupid. And then uh, why Teddy is short, or Teddy, yeah, Teddy's short for Edward. Isn't like Jack short for like Jonathan or something? For John. That that doesn't make any fucking sense. It's the English and the way they used vowels that they, in particular, Edward and Teddy. Apparently in English, you don't start words with vowels. And so, well, we got to throw a consonant in front of that. Ed, we'll make him Ted. Boom. I hate it. Yeah. But anyway, Hank. He shall be dubbed Hank the Tank. Perhaps friend of Thomas the Train. I just want to point out that you have a, you had a very different nickname for him earlier. And you wussed out. I can't have a whole episode built around the fact that Henry James's initials are H.J., and we're going to call him Handjob. You were just scared because you knew I'd say, I'd call you Rimjob. Hello, ladies. <laughs> Hank the Tank it is. I'm an old Rimjobber. I wake up every morning and I go to the nearest rim. <laughs> and you yeah. work, you'll work it all day long. <laughs> I work it all day long. <laughs> He's a working man's Rimjobber. It's like oral hygiene is very important to me. Oh, it's very important. To, hygiene should be very important to everyone right now. Young Tank was not a boy of letters or really much of a student. Instead, he was referred to as, quote, extraordinarily haphazard and promiscuous. Oh, that sounds very unhygienic. Then again, when the family was just jet setting around, how can you expect a boy to want to sit down and study? At one point, the family took what was basically a five-year vacation away from New York City. I fucking hate these, because we just did one not that long ago. I was like, yeah, they took like a couple years vacation in the continent. It's like, fuck you. This was done mainly because Henry Sr. wanted to go around and publish and lecture. During the five years away, the family spent extended time in London, Paris, Geneva, mm. Boulogne, Samur. Boulogne, Samur? A town on the northern French coast that means baloney on the sea. <laughs> or baloney of the sea. <laughs> or citadel on the sea, but eh, you make your own decisions. Definitely baloney. And last but not least, of course, no five year vacay would be complete without it. Exotic Newport, Rhode Island. That was the last stop. It was all building to that. It was all, everything was leading to Rhode Island. Yeah. All roads lead to Rhode Island. Hey, we went to Newport. Saw the mansions. We did. Yeah. The breakers. Yes. Yeah. Saw mm. how the other half lives. Richly. <laughs> <laughs> that was terrible. The longest stay for the family was in France, which is where Little Tank began to thrive. He even managed to learn French during his visit. He particularly liked speaking French and French because of it, since Little Tank had a stutter when he spoke English, but when he spoke French, no stutter. 
That's interesting. I've heard that that's... That I know that that is a thing because I've read about it, but it is interesting. Let this be a bit of support for all you stutterers out there. The problem isn't necessarily you. It's the language you're speaking. So just try to find the language that fits your style and you may thrive just like Hank the Tank did. There you go. It's an inspirational story. I recommend Klingon. <laughs> Upon returning to the United States of America, Tanky dug into French writers. In particular... He fell in love with Balzac. <laughs> not oh, his, who among us hasn't? Not his Balzac. The other Balzac. <laughs> Later in life, Tinky referred to Balzac as one of the world's greatest masters and credited Balzac for inspiring <laughs> his own storytelling habits. I'm an adult. When Tank was turning into a man, a.k.a. turning 18, he assisted in fighting a fire and injured his back. This injury resurfaced and caused him problems throughout his entire life. You may think, this sucks and is bad. And it was. But. But? There was a bit of a silver lining here. You see, he turned 18 and suffered the injury in 1861. Something else happened in 1861. War. Any guesses, Megan? War. Which one? Not the first one. That's too early. Hmm. I don't don't know which one. The American Civil War. Oh, fuck. That was that that was? Yeah, 1861 to 1865. Did not know that. Yeah. Thought it was earlier. So this injury kept him from being drafted into the war effort and thus potentially saved his life in a way. How about that? Later that year, the entire James clan moved to Boston to be near William, one of Tank's brothers, who enrolled in medical school. Being in Boston and wealthy and not having much else to do, Hank enrolled at Harvard Law School. As one does. He quickly realized that he had no interest in the law and that this was just something that was keeping him busy, so he dropped out. However, his time at Harvard did pay dividends. He met Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., a future Supreme Court justice, who became a lifelong friend of the Tank. Tank also met authors and critics, William Dean Howells and Charles Elliott Norton. No relation to Norton Publishing Company. I looked into it. Uh, You looked into so many things for this episode. It helped Tank realize that he had a passion for writing. Shortly thereafter, Hank the Tank published his first piece, a review of a stage play. A year later, he published his first short story. He was 21. He began to write for The Nation and The Atlantic Monthly. He wrote both fiction and nonfiction pieces for the publications. In 1871, he wrote his first novel, Watch and Ward, which was published as a serial in The Atlantic Monthly. Around the same time, he took a 14-month-long excursion to Europe. While there, he met John Ruskin, Charles Dickens, Matthew Arnold, and George Eliot. Just the whole gang. Maybe one day we'll read George Eliot. Or Matthew Arnold. Yeah. I don't know this John Ruskin character. You don't know who John Ruskin... Well, that's because John I knew Ruskin he was... was about, he was important enough for me to list. He met other <laughs> people. Those people I didn't know. He was listed first in the article, even before Dickens. So was kind of he, he was a literary art critic. He also, if you want to hear uh, more about John Ruskin... We cover him in the Ono the Class study break, I think in the grotesque in the arabesque. I think it's that one where we talk about that John Ruskin was absolutely horrified by the fact that his wife had body hair because the only familiarity he had with women uh, prior to that was statues was like the Grecian marble statues um, and the ladies in that don't got no pube hair. And so when he saw that his wife did, he was like, what the fuck? So that's my favorite Ruskin fact. Be more like a statue. Did she tell him that to him also or no? <laughs> I hope she did. She's like, where'd your fucking body hair come from, asshole? 
During his time in Europe, he made a number of stops. London was one of the early stops. He met with several publishers, including Macmillan. The big rage in publishing at the time was serialized works, which were consumed mostly in England by middle-aged women. Tank did his best, but that was a market that he just could not break into. In a way, Tank did not know what women wanted. Only Mel Gibson knows that. Ah, boo. The Patriot, what women want, the beaver. I've never seen The Patriot. How? It's a very good movie. Really? I've never got out of As a young Heath Ledger. Wait, maybe I have seen The Patriot. Megan, the movie ends, no joke, it's Mel Gibson with... What bothered me most about this movie, among all the possible things they got wrong in the movie, is the flag they use is the flag we know today with 50 <laughs> stars on it, which is weird <laughs> enough because clearly at the time of the wow. American Revolution, there weren't 50 states and that's not the flag we were using. That but anyway, it's like something someone should have caught. Mel Gibson's gun gets knocked away, so he picks up the American flag, he runs at Jason Isaac. And he stabs him with the American flag. Through his body. Fuck! So if you don't remember that, no, I you've don't. never seen this movie. You should see this movie. Fuck me, that's it covers funny. a lot of ground. That's ridiculous. Anyway, anyway, Mel Gibson, yeah, Henry James didn't know what women wanted. It was no Charles Dickens. And so Tank kept on doing what Tanks do in Europe. He blitzkrieged across Europe, Aye. arriving in Rome. He wrote about Rome to his brother William. Quote, Here I am in the Eternal City at last, for the first time, I live. Rome was apparently the place he wanted to stay, and he attempted to sustain a life there through his writing, but he was unable to support himself, and so he returned to the U.S. to be with his family and their money once again. As one does. Upon his return, he wrote and published about his journeys. He never stayed stateside for too long, always taking trips back over the pond. In 1877, when he was 34, he visited Wenlock Abbey, an Anglo-Saxon monastery that dates back to around 680, and had been restored and reworked several times, with most of the structures now there in the present day dating to around the 16th century. This monastery in particular, a pond on the ground, is said to have provided inspiration for Turn of the Screw. Around this time in his life, Tank was really living in London and really just visiting America here or there. The early part of the 1880s was a tough time for Tank. He lost his father, his mother, his brother Wilkie, and a few close friends, including family friend and Ono oh Lick Class alum, Ralph Waldo Emerson, in close Ralph succession. Ralph Waldo Emerson isn't really an Ono Lick Class alum yet. We, we just talk about him a lot. No, I couldn't remember if we did him or not. Never mind! Some <laughs> asshole named Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> now, was is this just sort of happenstance that his family was all just fucking dying off? or They just, yeah, they just kind of died. That, <laughs> that sucks. You know what good way to get over your troubles and worries and losses? Another vacation and making new friends and acquaintances. After all, Tank had a few new vacancies to fill. <laughs> Jesus. No. This time, Paris is what the doctor ordered. Well, not literally in Tank's case, but he met with someone who saw a lot of the world, in part due to doctor's orders, Robert Louis Stevenson. Ah, that is an Odalit class alum. He also befriended John Singer Sargent, who knows how to paint a shitload out of boats. It's true. He paints the fuck out of some boats at this point in his life james's writing was no longer the critical or commercial success it had been but that did not deter him or his travels he spent time in paris rome and london he eventually settled down in rye sussex in england where he wrote turn of the screw in 1898 a 19th century story with 20th century sensibilities oh. he spent the rest of his life generally living in england 
1904, he came back to the U.S. to tour and lecture on Balzac. <laughs> and you know what they say? What do they say? Once a boy discovers his Balzac, <laughs> you can show him the world, but he never forgets that first love. He'll return to it again and again and again. And so Hank the Tank showed the world his favorite Balzac. <laughs> stop after stop. One day we're going to actually have to talk about Balzac, which means I'm actually going to have to read some Balzac, and I will inevitably be disappointed. In 1913, at the age of 70, he wrote his autobiography. His autobiography. He wrote his autobiography. A year later, World War I broke out, so there you go, Meg. Okay. That's got to be crazy. Like, just as a time period, to live through the Civil War and then to see, like, the First World War coming about. Wild times. Which he wrote about for England. The following year, he was awarded the Order of Merit after becoming an English subject. And then, in 1916, he died. He left instructions for his ashes to be buried in Cambridge Cemetery in Massachusetts. He basically outlived nearly his entire family, including his siblings. Now, if you noticed, I never mentioned a wife, or heck, even a lover, for old Tank, let alone kids or a Henry James Jr. Jr. Tank considered himself to be a bachelor for life. A confirmed bachelor! One biographer, F.W. Dupee, posits that Tank was in love with his cousin Mary Minnie Temple, but never acted on it because, quote, Tank's individualism was itself the symptom. You definitely did not say Tank's. <laughs> well, I, I'm using bracket. Oh, there. you bracketed it. Okay, as long as it's bracketed. <laughs> Tank's individualism was itself the symptom of some fear of or scruple against sexual love on his part. Dupee, however, only had access to publicly available information and built this case of sexual repression from there. Now, over the years since, diaries and letters from contemporaries have surfaced, letters that are purportedly in Tank's hand to young men. These letters are rather erotic and shed light on a man who maybe was not completely sexually repressed, but rather a closeted gay man. One series of letters that surfaced were addressed to the sculptor Hendrik Christian Andersen, who was actually related in part to Hans Christian Andersen. I was going to say, how many Christian Andersons can there be running around? They were like distant cousins. Like, they weren't close, but right. they were there. The two met in Rome, as lovers do. Some snippets of the letters from Tank to Hendrik, who Tank referred to as my boy Hans, mm. include, My dearest little Hans, without prejudice to your magnificent stature. Mm. Mm. Big. Big boy. Your note of this morning is exactly what I had been hoping for, and it gives me the liveliest pleasure. I hereby ask you with all my heart, do unfailingly and delightfully come back next summer and let me put you up for as long as you can possibly stay. There, mind you, it's an engagement. I was absurdly sorry to lose you when that afternoon of last month, we walked sadly to the innocent and kindly little station together, and our common fate growled out the harsh false note of whirling you untimely away. Since then, I have missed you out of all proportion two, three meager little days, for it seems strange they were only that that we had together. Every word of you is soothing as a caress of your hand, and the sense of the whole as sweet to me as being able to lay my own upon you. Think only of my love and that I am yours always and ever, Henry James. That's pretty gay, bro. American academic scholar Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. I never said her middle name, but I knew her as Eve Sedgwick when I studied her. Ah. Hmm. She's a thinker. Mm. Anyway, Eve Sedgwick, who helped create the field of queer studies, believes it 
Not only does Henry James a disservice, but perhaps you miss the actual meaning of his work if you do not look at it at his work as coming from a closeted individual. Which we will definitely be looking at in this book. She also used the same lens on the work of Chucky Dickey, which we did not do. No, we, we didn't talk about that good gay shit at all. Yeah, she thinks he might have been a repressed gay man. Huh. While Tank found much fanfare during his life, there were also critics of his style. Many readers, both contemporary and modern readers, felt that sometimes Tank's use of language was a bit extra. Just a touch. Oh no, Lick Class alum for sure. This one I remember. <laughs> Edith Warden, who admired Tank greatly, said that there were passages in his work that were all but incomprehensible. H.G. Wells compared Tank, or his work, perhaps appropriately as Tank should be compared, to a hippopotamus laboriously attempting to pick up a pea that he had got into a corner of its cage. <laughs> Fuck, H.G. Wells, that's pretty good. Many European writers and readers criticized Tank for his outlook on European society. After all, Tank was an American who forced himself on the European culture. Tank even admitted that some of his best work was the result of him getting himself access to the dinner tables of the European elite and listening to what they said about the world around them. In turn, Tank would thrust a middle-class American, usually a woman, his own creation, into the tales he heard and voila, a novel. Usually the American woman being the protagonist and, well, the European society being the antagonist. He usually depicted Europeans and Europe in general as being of a beautiful feudal system that was corrupt and showed Americans to be brash, but lovers of freedom and expression, a clash of personalities, and always painting with such a broad brush. English novelist W. Somerset Mogham. Mom. Mom? Yeah, I had to read him. I think it's Mogham. <laughs> it's, it's W. Somerset Mom. The set of Tank. He did not know the English as an Englishman instinctively knows them, and so his English characters never, to my mind, quite rang true. The great novelist, even in seclusion, have lived life passionately. Henry James was content to observe it from a window. Colm Tobin. Can't help you there. Concurred that Tank, quote, never really wrote about the English very well. His English characters don't work for me. Mom. Did say, though, despite... Mom. 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 Mom <laughs> did say, though, despite Tank's unrealistic depictions, that in his mind, the man could write. Quote, the fact remains that those last novels of his, notwithstanding their unreality, make all other novels, except the very best, unreadable. Notwithstanding their unreality. Yeah. It's odd. Yeah, so they're not very... They were the blockbuster films of the day, you know? Maybe not very realistic, but damn was it good. Fair enough. Then again, maybe Tank had a reason to dislike the English, especially the showy, flamboyant types. <laughs> you see, in the mid-1890s, Tank was cajoled by some of the English theater to write a long drama for the English stage, and thus penned Guy Domville. By the end of the show, like the first showing, the crowd was jeering and even hissed at Tank when he took his bow. Oof. Why? Because they wanted to see and had to taste for another show that had just begun to run around the same time. The Importance of Being Earnest by one party boy, Oscar Wilde. Tink pouted and professed that he would never write for the stage again. Although he did eventually relent and apparently this episode did lead him into a long depression. Perhaps then it is apropos that we then turn to the focus of today's episode, The Turn of the Screw, which was written in the aftermath of that failed stage play. Ironically, Turn of the Screw was adapted to a Broadway show well after Tink's death. It sure was.
Hey everybody, it's Megan. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Better than me, I hope, because allergies have once again sent my face to hell. Because it turns out, you know, I, not only am I allergic to every plant ever, many of which are in Florida, I don't do great with rapid and dramatic fluctuations in temperature, and in the past seven to ten days, neither does the cat. Um, it's been in like the low 70s to the low 20s because the weather in Colorado is decided by like, I don't know, throwing something at a dartboard and just being like, this is the weather. Enjoy. I was blindfolded. And so breathing, it's a crapshoot. But you know who really takes my breath away? <laughs> Our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons who help pay for stuff like hosting and keep the show running, and especially now during this time in quarantine where I continue to be fun employed. That's like regular unemployed, except I'm stuck in my home playing video games, I guess. It's really not fun. Just very good and helpful, including our newest patron, Ruth Ann. Thank you, Ruth Ann. Other things. We have some new products in our store, uh, including ringer tees of all of our shirts. So if you like rings on your collars and sleeves, that's a thing you can get now. And then we also have a new line of Ono Lit Class Classics book covers that you can get on like journals and stickers and magnets. And they're like fun little book covers, but you know, we, we ruined them. I worked really hard on them. Please check them out. That's at onolitclass.threadless.com. Lastly, there's still a couple March Mini Madness episodes left in the tank that I haven't really been able to get to, and I'm going to try to get those out first on Patreon for our patrons, and then probably on the, the off weeks from our regular episodes. But we're back. We're back on our, our regular grind, and hopefully you're happy to see us again. So I think that's about everything. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, hope everybody is staying safe out there. In there. Hope you're eating in there and safe. But if you do have to go out there for work or whatever reasons, both me and Pravi, uh, and, and probably also RJ and Cooper, but mostly me and Pravi, hope that you're doing okay and that you will continue to do okay, that we're all going to be okay. I feel like okay, even in these trying times, is a good uh, good bar to shoot for. I'm bumming myself out. Let's go back to this fucking wild nonsense of an episode. Love you guys. The screw, as it is turned. Our story begins... Oh, hey, wait a minute. It's some turn-of-the-century literature. And you know what that means. Do you know what that means? No. No? You didn't want to hazard a guess? No. It means that our story doesn't just begin. It has to have a wholly unnecessary found footage framing device. How many does this bring us up to, I wonder? Because it feels like at least close to a dozen. But like, if there's some insane person listening who wants to get us a legitimate count, like, go for it. And Godspeed, because Lord knows we're not doing it, but this definitely feels like the bazillionth one. Anyway, are you, are you going to listen or are you going to fuck around on ESPN? Hold on. Dana White bought an island. For UFC fights. Mortal Christ. Kombat is happening. Oh my god. You gotta yeah, win to leave. That does sound like Mortal That is how Mortal Kombat started. They did go to a special island for punching and kicking. Anyway, the framing device is that it's a house party on Christmas Eve. But these folks are doing sort of a are you afraid of the dark for the approval of the Midnight Society shit. And are trying to freak each other out with ghost stories. As they are all in this uh, spooky old house. 
it's the old timey version of hanging out with your friends on Discord or something and seeing who can shitpost the best. Kinda. Okay, so maybe I'm reaching like an English teacher sitting backwards in a chair trying to connect with the youth, but whatever, I'm old. It's come to this. So our narrator, appropriately nameless and definitely not Henry James, brings us in by saying that the gang has just finished hearing a story by some guy named Griffin and that it is the appropriate level of gruesome that one would expect given their locale re spooky old house and that this assuredly gripping ghost story centered on a child seeing said spirits, which apparently makes things way creepier because, yeah, that tracks. Horror movies always get at least 27% creepier when you introduce a weird little kid into the mix, like Poltergeist, or The Exorcist, or The Shining, or Home Alone. And whoever's now trying to follow up this story is doing a lousy job of it because this other guy, Douglas, completely cuts them off like a dick, and instead is like, man, Griffin's story was so good and creepy because it happened to a little kid, but I've got something even better, because my story has two children. Whoa. And everyone's like, holy shit, yeah. If one kid ratchets up the tension, then another one will really get the old screw turning. And a young hot governess. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's not... The focus here is, is scary things happening to... If, if, like, what's the one... It makes me think of that vibe where they say, what's the one thing worse than, like, a rapist? A child. A child rapist? Well, because it's they're supposed to reveal child rapist, but the guy misreads it. He's like, a child. <laughs> that it's like, what's worse than a ghost story with one child? Two children. <laughs> and so people are like, tell us your story, Douglas. And Douglas says, oh, it's an old story and it's super scary. And no one's ever heard it before me until now. And I'm only going to tell you because the lady it happened to who wrote it all down is now long dead. And everyone's like, ooh, a true story. That's even better. Go on, Douglas. Tell us your story. And Douglas is like, I will. In two days. After this commercial break. <laughs> Basically. Brought to you by Geritol. <laughs> Geritol. Something, something, the calf's liver? Iron? I don't remember. Your cheeks don't clap like they used to? <laughs> Geritol. Geritol. <laughs> the reason is that he has the manuscript locked up somewhere and he has to go into town and get it. But that's just extra padding and an excuse for James to already begin baiting us and being like, Ooh, you want that good spooky stuff, don't you? Yeah, oh, Henry knows what you want, but you can't have it yet. You just have to wait and wonder what could possibly be so unbelievably spine-tingling. Or just read ahead another couple paragraphs. You know, whichever. So the Midnight Society reconvenes and Douglas gets on with it and introduces our main character, a nameless governess, only 20 years old and having successfully completed her first big job interview with a hot dude in the city who got saddled with a dead relative's two kids a little girl named Flora, and her older brother, Miles, who's still only like 10, they're like 8 and 10, I think, and they are a huge cramp to his hot and sexy lifestyle. He's already sent them away to a lonely mansion in the middle of nowhere, and is now looking to pawn them off on a caretaker so he never has to think about them again. Because he's kind of a dick like that. Even so, this young governess is immediately- Whoa, 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 time out. He doesn't want the damn kids. That doesn't make him a dick. He it's said, they got thrown at him. It's the way he says it. Yeah, well, you gotta go get laid, man. Both their parents just died in an accident. And he's just like, gross, kids, I can't get my fuck on with these around. Like, he's got no sympathy. Like, these are small children who've just had a horrible thing happen to them. Get over it. Either way, this young governess is immediately crushing on him and is like, yep, got it, live in bumfuck England, watch some kids you don't like, sounds cool. What's that? The previous nanny died? Whatever. Your face is pretty and I'm barely not a teenager. And my decisions are subconsciously made based on a level of horniness. But I don't consciously acknowledge this because I'm a sexually repressed person's daughter, but we'll get there. For now, after Douglas gives this background, 
there's a weird little moment where one of the ladies there asks Douglas if the story has a title, and he says he hasn't got one, and our narrator is like, ooh, ooh, I do, for some reason, despite not having heard the actual story yet, which is probably why Douglas very pointedly ignores not Henry James, and at least spares the reader from having to endure someone doing, like, the literary version of looking directly into the camera and saying, it's called The Turn of the Screw. And we finally finish the prologue and enter the story proper. So from here, we switch to the first-person narration of our young governess, who never gets a name because of course she doesn't, and calling her the governess over and over is definitely going to get old, so let's let's give her a name. What should we call her, RJ? Booberella. <laughs> Booberella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I see the problem. Is I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep saying Booberella. I can't even get through saying Booberella once. You can't even get through me saying Booberella once. Hank the Tank. No. Yeah. Um, Cindy Crawford. The point is shortening it. Cindy Crawford is just as long as the governess. Share. Share. All right, fine. We will call her Cher. <laughs> so after her interview, Cher confesses to going back and forth over whether she made the right decision. Right up until she's actually in the carriage that's taking her out to the mansion known as Bly Manor. But she decides that nah, this was definitely a good idea when she meets the adorable young Flora and the manor's good-natured housekeeper, Mrs. Gross. She's all giddy over the fact that she's basically in charge of everyone. Everyone being like her, Mrs. Gross, a small child and like a maid. But still, it's a grand house in the beautiful countryside, and she's the boss, and it's all quite a lot. Sure, she's having trouble sleeping, and her dreams are haunted by the sound of a crying child and footsteps just outside her door, but no biggie. Everything's great, and Flora is great, and Miles is going to be coming home from boarding school in a few days, and Mrs. Gross assures Cher that Miles is also great, and everything is definitely going to keep being great forever. Told her, save your tears. You're looking up Cher songs right now, aren't you? Only if you believe. Oh, god damn it. But Megan, are you strong enough? Look, don't blow your whole fucking share load right up front now. We got a long way to go. Oh, don't worry, Dancing Queen. That's an ABBA song, you dipshit. Oh, the share song, she did it in the movie. She also did Waterloo. That's all in the movie. Mamma Mia. Why are we talking about... No, okay. Except... Ooh, okay. That was a saucy picture. That is a saucy picture of Cher. Um, please focus. Okay, little man. Except that just before they go pick up Miles, Cher gets a letter from her boss. That would be the kid's uncle. The gunman. No, their their hot uncle. Their hunkle, if you will. Oh, just like Jesse James. To stop reading titles. She gets a letter that says, hey. I got you, babe. <laughs> Don't cry like a baby. Okay, can I please? Take me home. Look, Megan, <laughs> if I could turn back time, maybe I, we wanted to pick Cher's the uh, name. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to run out. So uh, the Hunkle sends her a letter that says, Hey, there's a letter from Miles' school. I didn't read it. I don't care. Remember not to tell me any problems you have because I'm presumably too busy smashing that big city puss. And the letter attached from the school says that Miles has been expelled. Weirdly enough, it doesn't say why. Just that he's not allowed back. Cher, at least, also finds it pretty weird that they would just expel a kid without explaining why, and she tortures herself over what thing this small boy has done that was so bad that the school won't even mention it. FERPA, man. This was in 18, the 1800s. They understood FERPA. I don't think FERPA was a thing. And even if they, they tell you why they're expelling your fucking child from school. Maybe to the parent, but not the nanny. 
Yeah, but the letter was addressed to the uncle. That's not his parent. That's his current only guardian. The parents are dead. Yeah, school don't know that. Oh, God. They, they are because the uncle enrolled him in the school. But whatever. She tries to interrogate Mrs. Gross about Miles. But Mrs. Gross insists that he's a good, sweet, perfectly normal boy that definitely isn't off-puttingly precocious in a sinister sort of way or anything like that. Just a good, good boy who has been expelled for some reason. And while she may be a bit naive, Cher can tell that Mrs. Gross is being a bit cagey, and this makes her even more curious to meet Miles, and also to question Mrs. Gross on a different sticky subject. The previous governess who died under mysterious circumstances. They have this odd roundabout conversation about how the governess, named Miss Jessel, was young and pretty like Cher, and that, quote, he likes them that way. And Mrs. Gross is quickly like, and by he, I mean their uncle, obviously. Who else would I be talking about? This is a normal conversation. Also, I don't know how Miss Jessel died. Just that she went crazy and now she's dead. So who even cares? Hey, look, Miles is here now. So does anyone ever go, oh, I'm looking for an ugly nanny? <laughs> Bring me your ugliest nanny. <laughs> but Miles is here now. And guess what? Like his sister, he's also just so adorable and physically beautiful, which is a mildly uncomfortable statement to make of a 10-year-old boy. But this apparently just adds to his charm and sense of innocence, and Cher, please stop, you're making it weird. Cher doesn't push things with Mrs. Gross anymore, and so they make up. And also, Miles is just a little delight, and so even with the issue of what to do with him once summer's over is there, Cher has a great summer hanging out with the kids and doing whatever, referring to this time as, quote, that hush in which something gathers or crouches, which is certainly ominous. We also learn that Cher likes taking evening walks after the kids have gone to bed, where she reflects on her life and also has Jane Eyre-style fantasies about her absolutely disinterested boss falling in love with her and coming to live at the manor. Look, she's she's just young, you know? She's not totally delusional. Or is she? Because it's on one of these walks, as she idly wishes for a man to come into her life, that one does! She sees the shadowy form of a man out on a parapet on one of the manor's towers and gets freaked out for the quite rational reason that there are no dudes at Bly Manor, and that this is some weird stranger somehow in the house watching her walk around alone. They're too far away from each other to speak or for her to get a super good look at him, but she can feel him watching her. He doesn't just up and vanish either, he stays at the top of the tower and watches her make her way back inside the house. Ooh. You got some soft eyes. I don't know what that means. For her. Okay. There's a weird man in your home, and that's where you go? Why is he weird? Because there's not supposed to be any man. There's, there, he's an intruder. Turns out, no. Spoilers. <laughs> After, Maybe she's the intruder. Spoilers. After this encounter, Cher doesn't try to track down the guy who might be secretly living in the house with her and two kids or anything like that but instead spends the rest of the night wondering what to do. You know, like go find the guy who might be secretly living in a house with her and two kids. She even gets really meta and wonders, quote, was there a secret at Bly? A mystery of Udolfo? Or an insane, unmentionable relative kept in unsuspected confinement, a la our old friend Bertha Rochester? She keeps the whole thing to herself, not wanting to worry Mrs. Gross. Sure thing, Cher, you wildly unreliable narrator, you. After several days of being observant, whatever that may mean, she manages to convince herself it was just some dude who cased the house, checked it out, and left. Because that makes sense. But even if it doesn't, Cher's got her hands full with the never-ending delight that is Miles and Flora. There's the nagging issue of him being expelled, but Cher still hasn't actually brought it up at all. Miles just seems like such a good kid that it feels crazy to even think about. 
Her governessing bliss is interrupted one Sunday when she goes to grab her gloves before heading to church. She gets a creepy sensation and looks up to the window to find... Sonny. No. It's, it's Senator not. Bono. Is that not also Sonny? Yeah. 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 I, just, I just said no. So why did you mean the same guy but with a different name? Good, oh, he good was, job. He was more professional here. Ah, no. Mr. Hunks. Who? The hunky man. The, oh, the, the hunkle? A oh, hunkle. The uncle hunk? Mr. Hunk. No. Oh. It's uh, the it's the Miles. Ma- <laughs> Miles with a little ding dong, yeah. No, what? Ding oing dong. Why are you talking about Charles Ding Dong? He was playing with his ball sack. <laughs> no, it's the man from the tower. Oh. Up close and personal. And he's looking in the house all right, but this time Cher can tell he's not looking at her. He's looking past her. Like there's something in the house that he's trying to find. The gold. <laughs> the thought that he's after something other than her spurs Cher on and she runs outside to confront him. Only this time he's vanished into thin air. She looks into the house from where the man was standing, but only manages to accomplish scaring the shit out of Mrs. Gross when she walks by the window. Once she calms down, Mrs. Gross sees that Cher is shaken and asks what's going on. <laughs> shaken, not shared. Cher finally tells Mrs. Gross about the strange man stalking the manor, describing him as handsome and red-haired with piercing eyes and that he looked like an actor. Presumably Ewan McGregor. This sounds like Ewan McGregor to me. She's being followed by Ewan McGregor, is what we're saying. Does Ewan McGregor have red hair? Yeah, he's a ginger boy. We should all be so lucky. But no, Mrs. Gross crushes that dream with the revelation that she knows exactly who this guy is, and he's no Ewan McGregor. He's a scoundrel named Peter Quint, who used to work at Bly Manor as the kid's uncle's servant, and that he was in charge once the uncle left. Oh, and also, he's super dead! Tripped and fell out on the street like a scrub. For whatever reason, though, probably because she's able to so closely describe him, Mrs. Gross believes Cher that the ghost of Quint is after them. Mrs. Gross confirms that Quint was a no-good, ne'er-do-well sort of dude, but that Miles looked up to him, as he was the most convenient father figure available. She says that they were even, quote, too close. And I don't particularly want to unpack what that might mean, and neither does Cher, because she's too wrapped up in the notion that she's a gothic heroine who must solve the mystery of the evil ghost man and protect her charges, and maybe even get to kiss her boss on the mouth. Somehow. Well, if you show that you do a good job with the kids, we'll kiss you on the mouth. Yeah, that's how that works. Yeah. When I do a super good job at work, my boss is going to kiss me on the mouth. Don't lie to the people like that. <laughs> you don't work. They know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she spends an extremely long time talking about how the children are just these super innocent babies and she has to shield them from any ghostly corruption and such. Some might say she's a little too into it. She gets real manic about always having the kids in her sight. And then one day, while playing outside with Flora, Cher senses a strange presence again. And while Flora is too busy playing with two blocks of wood or something, Cher sees... Close! But no, she does not see the Babadook. Get some more timely references, man. She sees Midsummer coming she, she see, Yep, she sees, she's like, oh no, over there, it's Midsummer. It's Florence Pugh. <laughs> Run! So it's a little women. Um, it's some lady dressed in black. Florence Pugh. It could be. She's just kind of there watching Flora and Cher from across the lake. But Cher senses that this lady is definitely full of evil intent because Cher said so. 
She also confides to Mrs. Gross later that not only is she sure this was an evil ghost, it's the ghost of Miss Jessel, the previous governess. And she starts frothing at the mouth that Flora had to have seen the ghost too. So why didn't she say anything about it? What if the kids are in cahoots with the ghosts? What if the ghosts come around the kids when Shira isn't there and now they've been corrupted and she can't protect them? Oh God. At least three panic attacks back is Mrs. Gross who's like, how would you even know that it was Miss Jessel? You, you never met her. You have no idea what she looks like. You're not going to get kissed on the mouth. <laughs> and Cher's just like, well, she looked like a, a pretty lady and she was wearing black. And Mrs. Gross is like, oh shit, yeah, I guess it was her. Also, I never told you, but Quentin and Miss Jessel were fucking... And that scandalous bit of juicy gossip was the last straw for Cher, who falls to pieces and cries that the children are probably lost already. Because reasons. Because Jessel and Quint be fucking. Also, uh, Mrs. Gross implies that Miss Jessel committed suicide because she was just so deeply in mourning uh, after Quint died. So that's fun. She wonders if she's maybe wrong, though. How could someone as pure and sweet and wonderful and innocent as Flora actually lie. She goes back to Mrs. Gross, who at this point is really more of an exposition machine than a character, dispensing plot information when she feels good and ready. And she has some, and it's all upsetting. She knew that Quentin Miles hanging out was bad and worried that he was exerting a negative influence on Miles. And when she told him so, he basically lied to her and was like, I'm not hanging out with Clint. Also, you're the housekeeper, so shut up. And that while that was happening, Miss Jessel was always with Flora, at least while she and Quint weren't fucking. The kids might have even known that the governess and valet were taking the Bly Manor Express to Bone Town and been complicit in keeping it a secret, which, from Cher's perspective anyway, seems to be tantamount to being in league with the fucking devil. She's just straight up losing her shit over this. Still, she's not going to accuse the kids of anything yet, and she's on the alert for more paranormal activity. And then, nothing really happens. Everything's pretty chill, and if the kids think it's weird that Cher is spending all her time playing games with them and is being a little more helicoptery than normal, they don't say anything about it. Because they're cute, and innocent, and wonderful, and they don't ever fight either. They're just very good kids, which, if we know anything about children in literature, is weird and unnatural. But she can never get too suspicious of Miles, even with a new school year looming because he's just, quote, too clever, and just beguiles her with his charm or whatever. You're so beguiling. <laughs> You're so beguiling. <laughs> we're, we're kept at a distance from these kids by narration. They're angelic. They're lovely. They're doing whatever shit cute kids do through a narrative pane of glass that's several inches thick. Because for some reason, Cher doesn't want us getting any closer than that. The only reason we get more of Miles than Flora is because Cher finds him so fascinating and frightfully clever. So where you start being like, hmm... How, how should I feel about this unreliable narrator and the fact that she won't let me get close to these kids, even in her retelling of the story? In the meantime, Cher sees Peter Quint's ghost again on a staircase, and they have a stare down before he disappears again. And Cher tells us that she felt no fear as they did, which you can either chalk up to an unreliable narrator lying to you, or that this woman is starting to go a tad bananas. So, like, neither option is a good one. And while she tells us that she never sees Quint in the house again after that encounter, she does later see Miss Jessel at the bottom of the stairs, looking sad, but absolutely still evil. She can be both. Then Flora, who sleeps in the same room as Cher, gets into the disconcerting habit of getting up at night, blowing out the candle Cher keeps lit, which, I mean, that's, that's basic fire safety right there, I'm just gonna say, and sitting at the window, as if waiting for someone. Someone like an evil ghost! 
Ooh. There you go. Casper. No, Casper's a friendly ghost. <laughs> that's what they tell you. Ah. That's what Cher thinks, anyway. She creeps out of the room to find another window to see who or what Flora is looking at, and she's in shock to discover a mysterious figure out on the lawn, and even more shocked that it's... Finn Wolfhard. I mean, kind of. We haven't gotten to adaptations yet. They ain't adaptation. He's well, like Keanu just... Reeves. He's been around for centuries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sonny Bono. No, it's never going to be Sonny Bono. Bono. <laughs> Why would it be Bono? He's pretty freaky, man. I guess. Look at him. Well, yeah, let me pull up a picture. Look at him. <laughs> Look at him. Yeah, that's. Man, I mean, that's Bono, all right. I mean, here's the thing, man. If you looked out a window, <laughs> and this is the face you saw, and I saw, I saw Bono re the Vertigo album. Um, yeah. Ooh, he is not aging well. Go back up to that that one picture. He don't look good there. <laughs> okay, I would be slightly disturbed yeah. if he was outside waiting on the lawn. I'll give you that. But it's it's not him. Okay, Please stop looking at pictures of Bono. It's Miles. Davis? I hate you. <laughs> oh, yeah, Miles Davis. I'm sorry. Uh, is Miles Davis being played by Randy Macho Man Savage this evening? <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> okay, now we're looking at pictures of Miles Davis. Yeah, we remember how to do a podcast. Look at blowing that trumpet, man. This is an audio medium. <laughs> Imagine a whole bottle of Jerry Curl juice and blowing a trumpet. Just waiting outside your window. Yeah, these are all upsetting, but no, it's Miles. It's fucking Miles. And the chapter ends. But it's okay. In the immediate next one, Cher is relating the night's events to Mrs. Gross and telling her how she confronted Miles about being out of bed and wandering around the front lawn, only be told that he and Flora had planned the whole occurrence, knowing Cher would go to try to see what Flora was looking at and find Miles outside, because apparently they wanted to be bad kids for once. You know, just for fun. Yeah. As a treat. You ought to be naughty sometimes. Not always nice. Well... Cher's just kind of like, okay, sure, but on the inside, she's surer than ever that the kids, while they might seem perfect and angelic and just distressingly beautiful, are working together with the ghosts and aren't actually innocent at all. She tells Mrs. Gross this, and Mrs. Gross asks the perfectly reasonable question of, why are the ghosts of Quint and Mrs. Jessel working to corrupt the children? Like, to what end? And Cher is like, evil, obviously, God, Gross, get it the fuck together. Mrs. Gross then suggests calling the Hunkle back home, because at the end of the day, she's just a housekeeper, and this ghost-busting business is above her pay grade. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, Cher argues against this. Even though it would mean seeing Miles and Flora's Hunkle again, it would also mean admitting that she had failed as a guardian and broken the rule of never bothering him about anything. And then he'd never kiss her on the mouth! So instead, she threatens Mrs. Gross, saying that if she tries to call the Hunkle, she'll leave, and Mrs. Gross relents. And anyway, things go back to normal for a while. Although the whole time, Cher is torturing herself, wondering if the kids know more than she thinks, or more than she does, and if the ghosts are still appearing, just when she's not around. The kids continue to be uninterruptedly sweet and wonderful, which is now practically nails on a chalkboard to this woman, to the point where she's actually sort of relieved when the next bad thing happens. And this bad thing happens on the way to church, of course, when Miles asks when he's going back to school. And actually, let me just quote directly because it really sets the tone for how fucking weird this conversation gets. Look here, my dear, you know, he charmingly said. When in the world, please, am I going back to school? Transcribed here, the speech sounds harmless enough, 
particularly as uttered in the sweet, high, casual pipe with which at all interlocutors, but above all at his eternal governess, he threw off intonations as if he were tossing roses. So this is already uncomfortable for a few reasons, not the least of which is that this ten-year-old is trying to suavely flirt with his twenty-year-old nanny. Instead of confronting Miles about having been expelled, they have just the most awkward conversation that is mostly dominated by Miles and like, yeah, okay, I, I can't really properly convey how this kid goes from zero to 60, or at least how Cher tells us it happens. Um, so I'm just going to read it. So, quote, I could feel in him how he already, from at my first finding nothing to reply, perceived the advantage he had gained. I was so slow to find anything that he had plenty of time after a minute to continue his suggestive but inconclusive smile. You know, my dear, that for a fellow to be with a lady always, his my dear was constantly on his lips for me, and nothing could have expressed more the exact shade of the sentiment with which I had desired to inspire my pupils than its fond familiarity. It was so respectfully easy, but oh, how I felt that at present I must pick my own phrases, and I remember that to gain time I tried to laugh, and I seemed to see in the beautiful face with, how, with which he watched me how ugly and queer I looked." And always with the same lady, I returned. He neither blanched nor winked. The whole thing was virtually out between us. Ah, of course, she's a jolly, perfect lady, but after all, I'm a fellow, don't you see? That's, well, getting on. I lingered there with him in an instant, ever so kindly. Yes, you're getting on. Oh, but I felt helpless. And so she she says, uh... Why is he calling her my dear? Call he her does, my doe. He does it a lot. Because the doe's a female deer. Okay. The song told me so. It's true. My doe. <laughs> He says, and you, can, you can't say I've not been awfully good, can you? And I laid my hand on his shoulder, for though I felt how much better it would have been to walk on, I was not yet quite able. No, I can't say that, Miles. Except just that one night, you know. That one night? I couldn't look as straight as he. Why, when I went down, went out of the house. Oh, yes, but I forget what you did it for. You forget? He spoke with the sweet extravagance of childish reproach. Why, it was to show you I could. Oh, yes, you could. And I can, again. Certainly, but you won't. No, not that again. It was nothing. And so he once again asks when he's going to go back to school, and she's like, oh, are you not happy here? Are you happy at school? And he says, you know, oh, yeah, I guess I'm happy here, but I, I, it's more than that. And she says, what is it then? He's like, well, I want to see more life. And that he, he wants to be, he says, I want my own sort. And she just, like, takes a few more paragraphs of Miles, like, talking to her weird and doing baby's first negging. Like, you know, I misbehaved once and I'll do it again. What are you going to do about it? And then they finally get to the dang church. Now, apart from the creepy flirting, Miles says some other weird shit here that is especially strange coming out of a kid's mouth. Like, I want to see more life and be with my own sort. Like, what does that even mean? Like, I guess his own sort could mean that he's tired of hanging out with his sister and nanny all day, but it's just weird phrasing. What would you do if a 10-year-old said that to you about why he wants to go back to school? That he wants to see more life? Yeah. He wants to see people, man. I'm down with him. He wants to see the world. He wants to go to Rome. He'll finally live for the first time in his life, just like Hank the Tank. I guess. Possibly. Mommy! <laughs> Mommy! I want to go to school. I want to see the people, the lights, the sounds. Life. <laughs> well, either way... At this point, Cher has also cottoned on to the fact that Miles has figured out she's too uncomfortable to directly talk about his expulsion and is using this to manipulate her in their conversations. Now, 
A seasoned governess would probably be able to deal with this and use some good old-fashioned discipline. Except, considering the time period, that probably would have meant, like, smacking him, and we don't condone that sort of thing here at Ono Lick Class, but this is Cher's first job ever, and while she ain't afraid of no ghost, and will literally angrily stare one down, at the first sign of uncomfortably precocious child sass, her first instinct is, I need to leave. Yeah, that's right, she's gonna pack up and run. Not because Bly Manor is fucking haunted, but because Miles is being a little shit, as ten-year-olds are wont to do. A weird little shit, sure, but still. She doesn't even stay for church. She runs right the fuck home to get her stuff and go. Like, the second a kid stops being perfect and wonderful and innocent, she's like, nope, can't do this. Ghost? Yeah, that's fine. Not a problem. Misbehaving kid? Nope. Fuck that. Going home. Speaking of ghosts, when Cher goes to the schoolroom to grab her things, she encounters the ghost of that lady who's probably Miss Jessel, maybe, just sort of hanging out there. Cher calls her a, quote, terrible, miserable woman because she had sex with a jerk. And Miss Jessel's like, rude, don't kink shame me, and disappears. This convinces Cher that she should stay. Sure. Then Mrs. Gross and the kids get back from church, and Cher tells Mrs. Gross that everything is, quote, out in the open with Miles, whatever the fuck that means, and then straight it's up there on, for all to see. I don't know what that means. What is out in the open? They the didn't boy. really talk about anything. It's out in the open. They don't need to. It's there. His Balzac is just fluttering around. Then she she straight up lies and says, Hey, I saw Mrs. Jessel's ghost. And she told me that she wants to torment the children and shit. So, like, now we know that for sure. And Mrs. Gross is like, Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And Cher continues saying, I'm in over my head here. Let's actually write a letter to the Hunkle and tell him that there's ghosts running around and also that Miles has been expelled. And Mrs. Gross, who basically suggested this exact thing like three chapters ago, is like, no, we can't do that. It'll get Miles in trouble. Times have changed. <laughs> Cher's like, no, 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 no. You're supposed to be the sensible one here, and I'm supposed to say stupid bullshit like that. And she insists she's going to write the letter. That night, she's unable to sleep and listens at Miles' door for some reason. Yeah, the kid's just in there fapping away. Um, he can hear, or she's fat. I don't know. Maybe they're maybe they're both just masturbating wildly. The kid can hear her masturbating at the door. <laughs> My dough. He tells her to come in because he's not asleep anyway. Cher again tries to talk about school with Miles and get any kind of information on why he was expelled and what happened, but he refuses to elaborate. And then she calls him dear little Miles a bunch and kisses him, and that's uncomfortable. And then she keeps insisting he tell her what happened. And then there's this sudden burst of cold air, even though the windows are closed. And it's so strong it extinguishes the candles in the room. And Miles says he did it. So that happens. The chapter ends there, and we pick up the next day, where everyone has apparently agreed to pretend that last night never happened. Miles and Cher play piano together, and it distracts her until she realizes that at some point Flora left the room and is now missing. She flips out, and her and Mrs. Gross search for Flora, and they can't find her, and Cher's just screeching like, She's with Miss Jessel! And while we're looking for her, Quint's probably back in the schoolroom with Miles! And Miles orchestrated this whole thing so that they could be alone with the ghosts! He's so much smarter than me! And Mrs. Gross is just like, what? So at least they're both back in their comfort zones. They finally find Flora by the lake, where she does seem to be coming out of a weird sort of trance, where she's like, oh, why aren't we wearing our coats and hats? And where's Miles? And Cher's like, I got a question for you. Where's Miss Jessel? And at this statement, the ghost of Miss Jessel appears. And Cher's like, God, finally. Which is a wild reaction to seeing a ghost. But mostly, she's just happy that one of the ghosts had the decency to show up when other people were around and prove that Cher isn't crazy. Except. Except. 
Except that both Flora and Mrs. Gross say they don't see anyone there. In fact, Flora just starts freaking out and yelling that not only does she not see anything, she's never seen anything, and she screams for Mrs. Gross to take her away from Cher. So... Take me away! <laughs> Rescue me! Yeah, that didn't go as well as she hoped. Smash cut to the next day, where Flora is sick with fever over the whole incident. She keeps yelling horrible things about Cher and- She smells like sauerkraut. <laughs> Mrs. Gross, even though she didn't see a ghost the day before, or at least says she didn't, is still siding with Cher that this is all the influence of the evil Miss Jessel. They agree that Mrs. Gross will take Flora to London to the Hunkle, and in the meantime, Cher will stay with Miles and keep trying to work on him, because that's gonna go fantastically, I'm sure. Also, the letter that Cher sent to the Hunkle telling him all the wacky shit that's been going on, it apparently never even made it to town, and both her and Mrs. Gross suspect that Miles stole it, and Cher wonders if maybe that's what he was expelled for. Stealing shit. Anyway, Mrs. Gross leaves with Flora, and Miles and Cher have dinner together, and we get this little moment, this is good, uh, quote, We continued silent while the maid was with us. As silent, it whimsically occurred to me, as some young couple who, on their wedding journey at the inn, feel shy in the presence of the waiter. He turned round only when the waiter had left us. Well, so we're alone. Cher and Miles are alone, and if you feel uncomfortable about this situation, you absolutely should. And you might ask, uncomfortable about Miles or Cher? To which my answer is yes. They dance around the subject for a while, as Miles does more awkward flirting, and Cher anguishes over how Miles is just the cutest Swedish widow guy, but also a masterful, cunning, evil boy genius. And it all gets a bit muddled, although, you know, that's partly the point. Like, Cher is very clearly becoming a little unhinged. Finally, she asks if Miles stole the letter, and two things happen. The first is that Peter Quinn's ghost reappears behind the window again, staring angrily into the house, and Cher actually grabs Miles to position him so that he can't see the window. And Miles, probably kind of freaked out because he doesn't know why his governess is suddenly manhandling him, admits that yes, he did steal the letter and burnt it besides. And at this, Cher, um, well, quote, with a moan of joy, I enfolded. I drew him close, and while I held him to my breast where I could feel in the sudden fever of his little body the tremendous pulse of his little heart, I kept my eyes on the thing at the window and saw it move and shift its posture. Okay. All the while clutching this kid and even shaking him, she presses him if he was expelled for stealing, and he says no, and finally, finally, finally admits what he was kicked out of school for. Any guesses, RJ? Fighting. No. Gambling. Nope. Cursing. Maybe? Breaking the third commandment. I don't know which one that is. You don't either because you're going to look it up. You just picked a commandment. He took the Lord's name in vain. Maybe? Here's the thing. It was saying things. Yeah. What things? Oh, you know, things he probably shouldn't have said. Did he say them to everyone? No, no, just the boys he liked. And then they must have said the things to the ones they liked. And that's how it got back to the headmasters and how Miles got in trouble. That's literally what he tells Cher. And much like Cher, I didn't know what to make of it at age 20, reading it in class. And a hot decade later, I'm still not 100% sure what it's supposed to mean. I mean, the closest thing I could think of is thinking of what we now know of Henry James and the combination of things you shouldn't say, but saying them only to kids you like seems like it might be some of that gay stuff, maybe. That's the best I got in terms of literary analysis for, oh, I said things. 
Only to the boys that I liked. Hey, yo, Billy. <laughs> I want to <laughs> suck your cock. Billy, you looking hot today. <laughs> Show me that dick, Billy. <laughs> They're ten. Anyway, all that really matters to share is that Peter Quint is still by the window looking real pissed, and she screams at him to go away, and Miles, realizing that she's not screaming at him, freaks out and asks if Miss Jessel is there with them, which, whoa, wait, that raises some questions, but no time for that now. Cher, still squeezing the shit out of this kid, who's apparently just, like, drenched in sweat, yells that it's not Miss Jessel, but someone else, and then Miles screams, without prompting, Peter Quint, you devil! Where?! And there's some great debate over just who the you devil is referring to, whether it's Quint or Cher herself. Either way, Cher takes the fact that Miles has said his name aloud as some kind of final victory and gives the kid another squeeze and is like, it doesn't even matter, he's lost you forever and now you're mine. And Miles wiggles away from her, looks out the window, screams and falls. Cher catches him and clutches him to her bosom some more, only to slowly realize that she is clutching a corpse because Miles has fallen down dead. R.I.P. Miles, you said things. The end. There's worse ways to die. Either being, like, scared to death or squeezed to death. Squeezed by boobies. Squeezed by boobs. Death by booberella. Yeah, there's worse ways. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. That's the sort of the screw. And in case you're wondering, no, we do not revisit the framing device at the end at all. So we never get to know how Douglas got a hold of this manuscript or if the people at the ghost story party were like, what the fuck, Douglas? Why can't you just tell a scary story like a normal person? Jesus. So were there ghosts? Did Cher scare and or throttle a child to death? That's for Henry James to know and literary scholars to debate over for 100 years. Well, more than 100 years. Close to 150, really. On the one hand, Cher the Governess is a wildly unreliable narrator, extremely impressionable, and has literally no one to validate her claims. On the other, weird shit definitely does happen. Like, she is somehow able to describe Peter Quint in perfect detail without ever having seen him, and Miles is freaking out at the end about who's in the room with them, and it doesn't mean nothing. So, you know, there's a lot to pick apart here. RJ, you have uh, feelings one way or the other? The kids repressed these people who were still around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the others. Yeah. They're there, we just don't talk about them. <laughs> so Cher's not crazy. No. But she, there's there's definitely still something wrong with her, though. Oh, yeah. She's pretty, though. She is pretty. Checks off that box. Oh, that's real important. <laughs> so let's uh, take a take a turn. Let's take a, take a turn of the screw into adaptations real quick. Now, which way do you think they were turning it? Clockwise or counterclockwise? Are we making it tighter? Maybe yeah. we're loosening it up? Well, no, of course you're making it tighter. The whole point is you're ratcheting up the tension. Why would they loosen the screw? Or head off her shoulders. <laughs> so <laughs> the screw falls out. It's clockwise because they're tightening it. Maybe. Oh, yeah, you wanted to have a screw loose? Yeah. Well, then it would be the loosening of the screw, you dumb bastard. It's just, well, it's the turn of the screw. You could turn either way. I suppose. And plus... Doesn't that depend if you're reading north of the equator or south of the equator, Megan? Does it? You have the Crayola effect. The what? Oh, Meg, you know, when you flush the toilet in Australia, it goes the other way. Yeah. Yeah. What does that have to do with Crayola? It's the Coriolis effect. I said Crayola to be funny. Too bad for you. I'm too stupid to get the joke. So... The turn of the screw has been adapted. In extreme- clockwise. Yes. In ex- They're counterclockwise. Clockwise. I don't know. It's been adapted an extremely respectable 28 times, mostly for film and TV. 
acclaimed author uh, Joyce Carol Oates wrote a fucking awesome short story called Accursed Inhabitants of the House of Bly that tells the story from the point of view of the ghosts Quentin Miss Jessel, filling in blanks and casting them in a more sympathetic light. Oh, so really like the others. Yeah, actually, kind of. Uh, well, no, but they're dead. They're definitely dead ghosts, but... Oh, in the others, aren't they dead ghosts? Yeah, but... Well, spoilers, I guess. They're, they're lovers who are doomed to haunt the house and still feel so much affection towards the children that they cared for in life. Apart from the fact that Oates' writing is just, you know, so good, it's a really cool companion piece to the novella, and it can also be read online for free, much like Turn of the Screw. Probably the most well-known slash uh, lauded adaptation is a 1961 movie adaptation titled The Innocents, which starred Deborah Kerr as the governess, here named Miss Giddens. Apart from the fact that at 40, Kerr was way too old to properly convey the naivety of a dopey, sheltered 20-year-old, she and the child actors all do a solid job, with Miles, played by Martin Stevens, being especially creepy and well-acted for an 11-year-old. Because, you know, child actors, that's a, that's a real crapshoot. The movie leans much more heavily than the book into what literary scholars refer to as Bitch Be Cray, giving her a means to know what Peter Quint looked like before she sees the ghost, and just generally acting super unhinged. Also, the third-person perspective the movie takes inevitably makes her look more like a delusional than a woman potentially being haunted by malevolent spirits. It's a great movie, though. And I wrote a whole paper on how it uses sound and silence to make things extra spooky compared to the book, because even if I wasn't taking a literature and film class, I'd usually turn it into one. Aside, pro tip. When you can't think of what to write about a book, as we've seen here on Ono Lit Class, if it's famous enough to be taught in school, someone usually has made a movie version of it. And book and film comparisons make for easy essay writing. That's a Megan tip for you. Boom. Most recently, there, there is also this year's The Turning, an absurdly goofy-looking horror movie starring cute blonde lady from the new Terminator movie as the, I don't know, not really a, a governess in this day and age. What would you call it, like an au pair or something? Yeah, au pair. Yeah. Living educator. And uh, Mike from Stranger Things. Or I call him Fran Drescher. Uh, As as a Fran Drescher. And Mike from Stranger Things is Miles and the little girl from the Florida Project. You know, that real great movie that nobody saw as Flora. These all seem like good things, but the movie got abysmal reviews. And honestly, the trailer did look pretty horrific, but I, I wanted to see it. Like, I wanted to see how horrific, but I never got the chance. Maybe someday. Finally, coming soon this year to a Netflix near you is the follow-up to the very good series The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Because I guess they have to, like, title every new season The Haunting of to tie them together. Like American Crime Story. Yeah, basically. It's just stupid, but I like the first season, even if it had very little to do with Shirley Jackson's novel, which we talk about. And I don't remember what the episode is. 60-something. And that leads us to the part of the show that we always get to, and that is, hey, RJ. That is my favorite segment. Hey, RJ. Yep. What's up, RJ? <laughs> how's, how's RJ feeling? Good. All right. Uh, the turn of the screw. Yep. Counterclockwise. Clockwise, counterclockwise, otherwise. Good or bad? I mean, I guess good. You guess good. Yeah, pretty good. Horror has never been my genre, but I do like this. Is she gaslighting them? Are they gaslighting her? Is everyone crazy? Is no one crazy? Who knows? And then it ends. I mean, then if we want to read it as you know, through the lens of queer theory, homosexuality is there, you see it, but then you don't. Ooh. Ooh. Some people see it, some people don't. <laughs> you know, and maybe if you read homosexuality this. Homosexuality is a spooky vanishing. And act. maybe maybe you read this with uh, old Finn Wolfhard 
I don't remember the kid's name. Miles? Yeah, Miles. Why is it you remember the name of the actor better than the... Finn Wolfhard's quite the name. It is a good name. Miles. Eh. So, what about Miles? If you read Miles as Hank the Tank, putting himself in the story. Yeah. That he sees himself all erudite. Yeah. All red. You know, talking up these pretty little European ladies and nannies. But then they weren't for him. No. No. And then he dies. And then he dies. He's smothered to death by their boobs. Oh, just like his writing career was for a little bit there. <laughs> smothered to death by boobs? Oh, because he couldn't relate to women. That was his problem. Ah, there you go. He didn't know what women wanted. No, Gibson wouldn't know there's what your, to do uh, in no, there. No, no. Here's your essay, though, kids. Yeah? Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? The screw that was turned. Yeah. That had a screwdriver used on it. Yeah, yep. Your thoughts. Good, bad, wise, clock, counter. The turn of the screw is the fun version of ambiguity, at least in my opinion. And it both embraces and subverts the tropes of the gothic-style ghost story. It sets up a very Jane Eyre situation. Young governess, handsome boss, cute kids, mysterious house with a tragic secret, etc. Except that our young governess has probably read one too many Jane Eyre-type stories. And lets herself get, in her own words, carried away by it all, with disastrous results. I really like this book, if that's not painfully obvious at this point. A story that could be fun and spooky while also forcing you to account for an unreliable narrator and draw your own conclusions in a way that doesn't feel too, well, I don't know, what do you think happened, is no mean feat. And I think this novella pulls it off with extra style points, so I say, good. But Megan... Yeah. In the story. Who do you believe? <laughs> you gotta auto-tune that. Okay. <laughs> so it sounds like Cher. Cher, yeah. I don't, you know what, I don't know, because obviously the impulse is to think that she was crazy, or, you know, just, just sort of delusional or whatever, but there's still things that can't be accounted for, like how she knows what Peter Quint looks like, like she describes him perfectly to Miss Gross. Or the weird thing when she's in Miles' room and the wind appears and blows the candles out. Like, there's weird little things that can't be accounted for. So, I don't know. I don't really fall on one side or the other, and that's the fun of it. And that'll about do it for this episode of Oh No Lit Class. If I could turn <laughs> back time, <laughs> I'd recommend this show. I tell my friends and my family and everyone I know to go listen and subscribe to Oh No Lit Class. Boom. Nailed it. So smooth. So good. It's so really clean. all I really want to do. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at Oh No Lit Class Pod. You can like us on Facebook. You would be one of us. <laughs> you can join the Facebook group. And the beat goes on. Uh, there's new stuff in the store. I'll probably talk about it in, in, in the middle bit. Um, and if you buy something, you'll be dressed to kill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, links, Meg. Links to all that can be found at onolaclass.com. It's the little things. <laughs> it really is. Um, Don't lose your train of thought. Wait, is that really a title? Yes. Don't lose your train oh, of no, thought? Oh, no, train of thought. Oh, okay. Take uh, it like a man. <laughs> I don't know what that would mean in this context. Well, Cher truly outgate herself with this one. <laughs> Offered one LGBT website of take it like a man's delightfully double entendre laden robot voiced Euro disco stomp with guest vocals from Sister Sisters Jack Shears. Little realizing that an album of ABBA covers was around the corner. 
Thank you. What do you want? The Guardian. <laughs> Our next episode will be out on April 30th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And we love you. Goodbye. Take me home. <laughs>